Welcome to the Age of Audio. My name's Graham Brown from the award-winning podcast agency Pickle & Co. The Age of Audio is a series of conversations with thought leaders and changemakers in the world of audio. That's podcasts, radio, and social audio, converging with big data to create engaging and authentic content for a new generation of listeners. Ben, so tell me, what does a journalist of X number of years know that a podcaster doesn't know yet? In my case, certainly if I cast my mind back to when I first started as a journalist, which was in 1997, 1998, it came purely from passion then, just an interest in the medium just sparked by listening to radio hmm. and having a particular kind of bunch of people who it would really inspire me, that made me incredibly interested in it. I didn't know what I wanted to do at all. I just knew I wanted to be involved in radio. And I wonder if that's what comes with an awful lot of podcasters now. They Maybe they hear podcasts, they just get inspired and they want to get involved. Then when it comes to the reality of actually creating content that other people want to listen to, that isn't mm. just uh, you know a bit of a... a and, and the wonderfully fun ego trip isn't just self-indulgent. What happens next? And certainly if I were to listen to, you know, things I did back in 1998 compared to something I'd have done 10 years later, there would have been a vast difference. And, for example, storytelling, seeing as that's oh. one of the themes that we're exploring, that became far more instinctive, understandably, as it does if you've been in the business that long. And certainly now I barely even have to think about it. It's something that I find incredibly easy to do to the point where you suddenly think, this is so straightforward. Why isn't everyone else doing this? Hmm. Like, this, has come, this has come to me in such, a, such an easy way, but as it would for anyone who's done something for that long, if you were playing the guitar for 20 years, suddenly you think, well, why can't anyone else do this? So that's what I would say to podcasters now it might not come to you straight away, but hang on there, hang on in there. You will get better at it and you will always have fun. It will always be enjoyable. There has not been one second in my whole career broadcasting in any way that I haven't enjoyed it, that I've ever dreaded going into work the next day. I never, I never clock watch. I think that's the joy of it. I never, I've worked in jobs before then, working in a call center. You start at, whatever in the morning and every 10 minutes you'd be looking at that clock. Yeah. I didn't even smoke and I went out for cigarette breaks. I can't ever remember. The only time I looked at a clock was when it was coming around to the top of an hour and I knew how I had to do a, a news bulletin. Love it. I love this idea about storytelling. You know, as a journalist or somebody, as, as an observer, somebody looking at journalism, for example, your sort of natural instinct would be that journalism reports the truth and mm. the fact as opposed to story. And people may may argue that story in some way is an interpretation of the truth. And therefore, for a journalist to be a storyteller, it seems to me, and I'm playing devil's advocate here, that it's not good journalism. And so how can you say it's about journalism and it's about storytelling together? Aren't these some way contradictory? 
Well, you're right. I'm a, an awful journalist. <laughs> and that's why I don't do journalism anymore. I went into podcasting because my editors kept saying to me, my God, this is fake news. I discovered fake news before anyone else did it. And I'm very, very proud of that. If you look on the Wikipedia entry for yeah. fake news, Origins of, there's my name. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. But it's got to have that element in it to an extent mm. To keep people interested. It's not, you know, I'm not saying a, a news bulletin that you'll put out, you know, some of these stories that we used to do were, you know, were, were three sentences long. So, you know, you don't have chance to tell a story. Obviously, you don't. Mm. But you're going to get opportunities within journalism, within working on radio, definitely within a podcast to tell a story. And that's when you've got to seize that opportunity and make the most of it. I suspect mm. that's why an awful lot of people get into it, particularly in radio. They might think, okay, I'll jump into it through news and then I'll get the opportunity later on to maybe have to be able to do three minute packages, five minute, make, you know, dream of working on radio four or something like that and be given 20 minutes to tell a story. So mm. I was kind of thinking of it more that way rather than a, than a pure news bulletin perspective. Let's look at it from the perspective of turning news into stories. Obviously, where we're recording this now, the news and sport at the moment is about the Super League and the European, you know, Tier 1 leagues in soccer, right, football. Yeah. And uh, that's the fact, right? That's what's happening right now. How does a journalist look at that and turn it into a story? Because what I, what I kind of want to get across here is that for those in business – that storytelling isn't once upon a time. That's a type of story, right? But it's not necessarily the only format that we're using here. How would a journalist approach news like that and make it relevant? Speaking personally, I'm a Reading fan. We had a brief conversation about this before we went on air. You know, the, the jolly locker room banter about our clubs being uh, rubbish and how badly they'd be affected by this. And I kind of tongue in my cheek said, I don't care. My club is never going to be affected about this. We're never going to get into the Premier League. And to be honest, it gives me a bit of a giggle to see all these clubs in their Premier League who haven't been included all clutching their handbags. Going, oh, no, this is absolutely terrible. Well, you know, a club like Reading has been, or lower down than Reading, to be honest, has been on the receiving end of this kind of thing for, you know, X amount of years, probably lesser Reading, but other clubs. So story-wise, just coming from that off the top of my head, I'll be wanting to trace back, say, to the beginning of the Premier League. And I'm going to struggle to pronounce this. Uh, I was going to say inexorable, but I think you mean uh, the word, I might choose a different word, um, inevitable. <laughs> How inevitable this was if you trace it all the way back to the early 90s, to the situation we're in now. So story-wise... That'd be the story that I'd like to draw from something like that. So, you know, any journalist would tell you it's just about looking at things in a, in a slightly different way uh, to create a story from it rather than recording purely what's going on. I was reading this book, Ban, by a journalist called Bob Fisk. He's Irish. He lives in Beirut. And he spent his life writing about news in the Middle East. You know, he, he was there in the Iran-Iraq war, and they wrote the first one, right? And then he has been there until the present day. And, you know, you can easily become sort of inured to all the happenings 
you know, in, in that area over the last 30, 40 years. But I read this book and it must be about a thousand pages long, no joke. And I, I read it cover to cover and it was all his stories. And, you know, he, he wrote about some quite dark things, but he had to because he was talking about what was going on in that region. And I don't want to get political, but the point is, is that that to me is like really powerful journalism that he was using his craft to make you care. And I think that that's kind of like, if you, whether you're a director or a journalist, you have this ability to connect the audience with the subject matter in a way that they care about it. And to me, that's a real craft. And maybe like you say, it comes instinctively, but where does that come from? Where does, do they train you that in journalism school? Uh, what is the formula for that? Um, did they train me in journalism school for that? I, I think they probably tried, but I, there was nothing I learned in journalism school that could possibly match, you know, two weeks experience, my first two weeks of actually working in a real radio newsroom. So, um, you know, you've got to bear in mind that I haven't worked in a radio newsroom for quite a while now because um, I went out to radio in and then went into branded content, if you like, uh, working mainly in video. Uh, but when I was there, an incredibly exciting place to work in, surrounded by very, very bright people surrounded by very, very bright people who kind of got that kind of uh, desire to entertain as well. Let's face it, there's got to be an ego there to want to go on uh, on the radio. And it's interesting what you say about there being some very, very dark stories because you do become immune to some of the dark stories as well, as I guess any journalist would tell you. Some awful things would happen and you wouldn't think about them in a way that most normal people would because you're mm. approaching them from such a, such a totally different way. That That's not a, I haven't come up with a unique idea there. I think anyone would tell you that. So that was certainly what it was like for me. Um, in the end, I became a little jaded. I think it felt like at points, the longer I was doing it, it became a bit of a sausage factory. The same things day in, day out. Maybe because I wasn't getting the opportunity to do maybe longer form storytelling as, as much as I would like. So that's why I felt I needed a change. And interestingly, I was, I think, seeing the demise of radio. It was kind of right at the point where, you know, radio, in particularly in this country, in the UK, was starting to go downhill. Trouble seemed ahead. And that's another interesting thing, how you could you could potentially argue that podcasting has seized the bat on there and the renaissance of engagement through rich audio storytelling, which was one of the, the things uh, we were going to be talking about, certainly one of the things you talked mm. raised with me before this recording. I think you can directly link one to the other. You mentioned entertainment as a sort of a, a base mo for somebody in radio when i look mm. at a lot of podcasting now even though you, you say it's picking up the baton when you think about or you even listen to a lot of podcasts it seems to be that okay we're at early stages and a lot of people are just getting in the game um, but the entertainment factor really isn't there so much people aren't obviously they're not professionals they're not 
most people aren't getting paid as they would be in a radio station, right? Or even train. And yet, like when we think about creating content, and I know you've done this in video as well, is that there's a different starting point, isn't there? It's like not necessarily, hey, what do I want to talk about? When I ever, ever I speak to people in radio and increasingly in video as well, it's like, what do the audience want? And how do I deliver that? And yet here we are on podcasts and people are saying, oh, I want to start a podcast about garden furniture because it interests me, right? And okay, I'm wondering if like, okay, is, is that a reasonable assumption to start? And you wouldn't get away with that in radio, would you? And increasingly in video, you would just get like eaten up by lack of engagement or I don't know. I mean, where do you start with something? Like, do you start with a subject you want to talk about or do you say, okay, who's the audience that I want to entertain? Which to you and I seems so stark, ravingly obvious. We can't even believe that people would have to be told that. It just it just seems it just seems so instinctive again. But you're absolutely right. People do forget to entertain. There's so much talk about bringing your authentic self. Mm. Um, you've got to inform. You've got to educate if you want to take Rethian values, appropriate that to this conversation. And all of those things are absolutely right. And it's so important to be authentic. But if you don't bring entertainment, then you can be authentic as you like. If the audio is dull, no one's going to be listening to it anyway. So there has to be that element of performance as well. Thinking of your audience Mm. and bringing an element of performance because you are trying to entertain. If the person is boring, if they're not performing, then that has as a producer, that's when you really earn your money. That's when you've got to bring that out of uh, out of whoever's taking part in the podcast and make sure when you do produce the final uh, podcast, the final piece of content, um, excuse me using the word content, it sometimes mm. it makes me shudder. I don't know why. Um, it seems such a cliche. But when you do produce that, it does have to entertain. And you've always got to be bearing that in mind. You've always got to be thinking of your audience. Is this interesting for them? Is this indulgent on behalf of uh, people actually taking part in the podcast? You've really got to be very careful of that. I love this idea of performing. And I'll tell you why. Firstly, I think about all the webinars that I've sat through and you've sat through <laughs> and, and even participated in and how much – of those were presentations as opposed to performance. It's yeah. almost, you know, this idea of like a an event, even if you go to an industry conference, yeah. that model is, you know, you queue up and you get your badge and you, then you sit at the table with the, with the white tabletops and you, you pick your sweets out of the bowl and you speak to the person next to you. And well, that, that's kind of an event. And yet performance is very aware that you've got, 30 seconds and if you Mm. don't get them you've lost them they're looking at pictures of cats on their screen on facebook or whatever they've gone so that performance as well is like you you mentioned authentic self and this is something else i really feel we're unraveling is performance really means putting yourself out there like if you were a musician you don't leave anything on the table do you when you perform You, you you go live you give everything and that takes everything out of you and that's what people come for, right? And then you also have, if you even take that to radio, that the best hosts are performers. Like e- even to the 
down to their voice. Hmm. How that isn't actually their natural voice. You know, I listen to people like Howard Stern and <laughs> his voice, you know, he's got an amazing radio voice, but that's art, that's craft over many, many years, right? That's kind of honed into a performance, right? That's his, that's his instrument. And yet, you know, how, how do you see performance? What, what is it to you? You've spent years on in room, newsrooms and you, you've seen what essentially is people conveying information, but then you look at people who are doing it in the way where they're performing and getting that across. How does that mm. work? And what sort of inspired you in that area? It's interesting that you mentioned uh, being a musician there because I'm very much an, an amateur musician, but I do play in bands and played solo over many years. I used to busk in Sydney. I did that for, oh, for an awful, awesome. awfully, awfully long. It was. It was terrific. That's interestingly what I went to do after I stopped working as a radio journalist for the first time. I just thought, right, I'm just going to go do something totally different and went and did that. And that was, yeah, a wonderful experience. Many, many stories surrounding that. Mm. There too many to go into. Anyway, the point I was trying to make Well, was- I think it is the point you're trying to make. That's what <laughs> fascinates me. Like busking, stand-up comedy, and even podcasting, they have a lot of similarities. What, how, how can you draw that arc between busking? and I, I've never busked. What, what is it like as an experience? I've only ever consumed buskers yes. for, as an audience. What is that experience actually like? Like many things, sickening at first. And then you get used to it and then you start to enjoy it like um, Mm. (laughs) many kind of jobs. And particularly when you're backpacking, um, you get to revel in the amount of cash you're earning compared to – compared to your friends that's how i found it <laughs> but but my dad was a musician as well and wh- when i first started playing he said the one thing you've got to remember is you've got to go onto that stage and you've got to make the audience feel that you've got everything under control you've got to be in charge up there and if you can go into it thinking like that if you if you get it even if you don't feel like that but if you manage to portray that then you're going to be able to give a performance and they're Mm. going to be able they'll feel comfortable listening to you and that goes for being a broadcaster being a musician as well certainly uh for myself busking because you know i I get i've never been a stand-up comedian either this week Mm. this may shock you considering the the dreadfulness of my attempted gags throughout this whole podcast yeah but if uh, it would be a short-lived career (laughs) <laughs> it would have been very short, <laughs> short in this podcast. But if you don't have that, or if you don't encourage a client to bring that to the table, yeah. then what you have certainly isn't going to be as good as it could be. There's a vulnerability in it, isn't there? And hmm. you know, all props to you standing up and busking. In a way, you're much more vulnerable than doing it in front of thousands of people. Because How dare you didn't assume there weren't thousands there? <laughs> Please. Quietly confident of that fact. <laughs> so, you know, you're right there in front of them. And, you know, in, in it, literally your cap in hand asking for money, right? Yeah. And so you are at the, in a way, you are at, I suppose, very vulnerable to them because, you know, not everybody wants to listen to you. And um, some people stop, and even there's that sort of very awkward moment when people like stop and watch, and like, should I stick around and watch this guy? 
you know, it, it's because the guy's right there, literally a meter away from you. It's a tough, and it's, you know, the parallels with stand. I've never done stand-up comedy. I'm just not funny enough, right? And that is very vulnerable. You say about being in control, mm-hmm. like your dad said. That's that's quite a, a, a profound insight. You think about stand-up comedians. That that's all about control. Mm. You, you're dealing with hecklers. You're dealing with um, the mood, and if you lose it. If you lose the mood of the or the engagement of the audience, you've lost the whole thing, right? Yeah. And in podcasting, in a way, the, the challenge now is that okay, you can be a busker or a comedian, but that's fine. That's never really going to be something a senior vice president of marketing needs to do, right? But yes. that's the challenge right. now: is that that guy or that woman needs to get on a microphone and be vulnerable. And this is really interesting, isn't it? Because you've got people now who've got 20 years of experience of doing the opposite, of being efficient. And now you're sticking a microphone onto them and say, okay, right, uh, tell us a story or tell us a little bit about yourself without sort of going into pitch mode, right? I wonder how you get that out of people. How do you get that vulnerability out of people who aren't natural buskers and comedians? Uh, it's funny. Uh, before we de- – uh, did this interview um i've done hundreds and hundreds of in- god knows how many interviews as uh, the interviewer but a handful as an interviewee and you can't help but get nervous going into it and you think oh, oh my god if i truly got anything to say and you said to me oh don't worry uh, we'll make it sound good so if you are listening to this uh, anybody uh, graham has done a wonderful job of making this sound good because i've been truly awful throughout the whole of this episode <laughs> so a round of applause well done, Graham. The man's a genius. Anyway, so you say that to people. You know, you just make people feel totally at ease. Hmm. And an awful lot of it comes down to, yet again, experience, having worked as an interviewer for many, many years, working with people who aren't used to being interviewed, who will be sitting down in that chair, and you can actually see them visibly shaking. Right? Hmm. How am I going to get a performance? How am I going to get anything usable out of these people and you kind of know the beats to hit if you like what to say what not to say how to make them not feel like they're under pressure in any way thankfully i kind of do branded content podcasts i work with an awful lot of ceos and people at that level and you know they should be once they've reached that level they should be pretty comfortable in front of a podcast they should have given an awful lot of um you know if you like webinars speeches over the years they should have interesting things to say that you shouldn't have to give them too much of a steer so it doesn't happen often but when it does you've got to step in there and make sure in a gentle way a way that doesn't put people off that you know by the end of that interview, even if it's taken an awful long time, you will have enough usable stuff there that you can knit it together. So they'll listen back. And after they've got uh, over the uh, the awkward moment of hearing their own voice, mm-hmm. they'll think, that turned, out, that turned out all right. One of the challenges I find, Ben, is with people like that, especially if they have a lot of experience in presenting, not necessarily that experience was in presenting the right way. Yeah. You know, you have people who really are, you know, in command of a stage. They can do great public speaking. They're relaxed. They're almost in the zone, you know, that flow state that people talk about. And they're telling stories, right? Mm. And they're talking to you. 
like they're looking at you and they're speaking to you directly on the stage or in a podcast and that that's very reassuring and yet there are then those there are a lot of people uh, because it seems to be the default who say a lot without saying anything like you really want them to get specific okay so you, you've mentioned this fact do you have like a personal story do you have like an anecdote you can drop and even if you encourage them and i find this a lot with webinars and even podcasts that they struggle mm. they would have you know i've sat with very senior people and you've spelt it out to them the audience likes stories folks so let's you know, in terms of storyboarding this, when you do the prep for a podcast, let, let's put that, some anecdotes in here, right? And even if you ask them, they, they struggle. They then sort of resort back to just, what's the word I'm looking for? Vanilla. Yes, beige. Beige. There we go. Two different colors. There we go. Yeah. The, you know, if you think about your, uh, your new furniture and you don't want to cause offense just before you sell your house, you're not going to go for something bright, are you? I'm just looking at my sofa. <laughs> Mine's the same. <laughs> I was thinking, where's more cream, actually? I- Ikea beige. beige. Yeah, it's actually <laughs> Ikea beige. I was all up for the offensive colours, but my wife said, <laughs> <laughs> That's a good colour, that, on the Dulux colour range, offensive beige there we go a real mishmash anyway uh, sorry Gwen. where do we go with that well yeah well what is how do you get people out of that i mean i've really struggled sometimes and maybe yeah. maybe you can't maybe it's like asking people to sing you know yeah like, i don't know is, is it, it are there sort of hacks tips to get people through that because oh, even man. if you sort of you know it's the old adage you can take the horse to water but you can't make it drink you know these guys aren't thirsty they don't yeah. want to do the anecdotes. I think there's a fear, isn't there? Yeah, I I wish I could tell you. Ah, oh, yes, I have this uh, instant answer for this. Over the many <laughs> many years I've been doing this, I've come up with a perfect way. No, goodness me, no. There are still plenty of times where, you know, you almost you're banging your head against a brick wall, thinking I've given like exactly what you said, lead a horse to mm. water, and you think I've given you so many opportunities here to share something and you're not taking it, and then as soon as you start recording, it changes. Yeah. And suddenly they relax, his story comes out. So, you know, there's that approach. Oh, I'll tell you what, can you, can you say that again for me? Or, you know, probably something a bit more sneaky. You leave the tape running, hmm. and you say, oh, I actually recorded that. Do you mind if I use it? So that's another approach. Obviously, you've, you've got to have some ethics there. If they say no, you don't use it. So, uh Oh, crikey, can I admit to have doing to have done that before? No, Whenever I have done it, <laughs> I will always make totally sure that they know I have done it and yeah. run it past them before I do. Yeah, particularly with In the, the client. disclaimer. Yeah, actually, that's interesting, isn't it? Like, I went through five hundred episodes from one of my podcasts, and mm. I, I've done a lot. Like yourself, done a lot of practice. Done my done my ten thousand hours, maybe. And, you know, <laughs> do you listen to the Malcolm Gladwell podcast? Yeah, history? I like oh, Malcolm. Man, that's a cracker. I love I like, that. I, I just, I, he's a, you know what? He goes down a rabbit hole of just it's great detail. I love it. Yeah. I, totally. And it's like, I'm with you, Malcolm. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he did one about, um, oh, I don't know, he was talking about the sights on some World War II bomber 
Yes. Yeah, that's one of the most recent series, wasn't it? It was yeah. just bizarre. It's like, why the hell is this guy talking about it? But it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I love that. I mean, I go back, you think about your teachers at school, Ben, and, uh, you know, like your teachers that kind of told stories were the ones that really mm. got you. Do you remember, for, oh, just a bit of memory lane here, digressing, but on TV, because you probably remember from similar era, there was a guy on TV called Johnny Ball. It did think of a number. <laughs> yep. You remember that? This is, so for those that don't know, he was like, uh, he, he did do a program about maths, right? The most boring subject in the world, but he made it really interesting. And I used to rush home from school to watch that. And I just feel like it's like, yeah, that's it. It's performance, isn't it? It's storytelling. Yeah. The best teachers were also the best storytellers, the best performers. And even like with Malcolm Gladwell, I mean, he's yeah. doing it in his own way. He's like really deep into the weeds of detail. You're a historian, right? You studied history. Yes, you know, so, at university. And I suspect I've got more of a passion for it now than I did then, I mm. think. And it, it is interesting you say revisionist history. There are lo loads of podcasts out there. If I was to scroll down on my phone now, the amount of podcasts I'm subscribed to that have some kind of link to history, hmm. um, there, are, there are some absolute belters out there. And it just made, makes me wish that these were around when I did my A-levels. <laughs> it would be absolutely brilliant. It, it's funny, you mentioned on your LinkedIn feed that you've been uh, talking to uh, Pascal Hughes of yeah. Noiser. Oh, Is that yeah. right? I love real dictators. Oh, That's right yeah. up my street. <laughs> I really enjoy it. It is amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's incredibly well researched. It's McCann. Which of the McGann brothers did the... Um, oh, Paul. Yeah. Paul McGann. Yeah. And he's brilliant. Yeah, he's uh, great. Such a wonderfully high quality in every mm. single way. And, I, and I, you know, I used to... When it, when it dropped into my feed, okay, that's the first one. Hmm. I'm listening to today, but that's by no means the only kind of history linked podcast. There's a lot of history, isn't there? Why, why do you think that is? Having been a student of history, I'm sure you learn it in a very academic way, like all subjects were taught, right? Why is it now that it's anecdotally one of you know the most yeah. popular genres? Because I think maybe like me, people are returning to it. And uh, you know, uh, perhaps it was rather dry when they were at school or at university, or maybe they didn't necessarily be the see the big picture as much mm. when they're at university or at school. And the people who are doing the podcasts, I think, are invariably incredibly, incredibly passionate yeah. about what you, what they're doing. Certainly, ones that I listen to, they're incredibly passionate and they're very well researched. I mentioned they're real dictators. Um, there are some other uh, brilliant ones as well that kind of have that that rich audio, if you like, hmm. not just a straightforward uh, a two-way conversation that, that are brilliant. But having said that, there is one that I absolutely love that's the only podcast that I am contribute to on, on Patreon, the only one, hmm. and it's one called Cold War Conversations. And it's just a chap who knows – he's got this passion for the Cold War – speaking to a different guest every week and it is incredible it's about an hour long and it is absolutely wonderful and i again it's when it drops on a on a saturday right that's it that's the first thing i'm listening to today so if you've got and he's not a broadcaster by trade the chap who does it at all but because he's so passionate about what he's talking about because he knows the subject back to front 
it, it's an absolutely compelling listen if you like that kind of thing. So it's got that niche side to hmm. it as well. And you are a paid up subscriber on Patreon. That's yes. fascinating. Yes, I know. I know. I know. You know, I'm incredibly tight with my cash. Yeah. So I got a, I think it was the uh, it was the thought of getting a uh, a drinks coaster when I paid my money <laughs> that tipped me over the edge, and I have it sitting next on my my bedside table, and I'm very proud of my cold war conversation. Awesome. Uh, it's amazing, isn't it? That people are forking out for history podcasts. You, you wouldn't have made, like, I mean, can you imagine when you're at university, somebody would say, okay, like in the future, people will be doing this. Yeah. You couldn't imagine it. Could you, of all the subjects, you say, oh, maybe music. Yeah, I get that. I'd pay for yeah. a, a band because I support the band. But Cold War history, it's amazing, really, if you think about <laughs> how un-rock and roll that is. But yet, maybe it is rock and roll because, like you say, it's about passion. There is a one of the episodes is about um what a an American rock and roller that was incredibly successful in East Germany. So uh so <laughs> there you don't, go. don't rule it out. Or maybe in <laughs> Russia. I can't remember which. Don't don't hold me to that. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I I think when I was at school, you know, much as I say I wish I had it when I did my A levels, I why not I wouldn't have I don't know if I would have li listened to it. I'd be really interested to people of that age now. You mm. know, we're told they're becoming more and more interested in A-levels, in A-levels, in podcasts, but would it be something like that that they'd listen to? My wife is a teacher. She is a, a huge fan of podcasts. There are many, many times when we're both wandering around the house with our headphones in, listening to different podcasts, then we'll catch up at the end of the day and actually speak to each other. And I know that she's enthused about podcasts to her um, pupils and there hasn't as of yet been a massive take up in any of the things that she has recommended to do with mm. the subject she teaches so that's going to be interesting you know this is only a very very small sample size to see if that does happen when it does if you know if that does uh, keep them engaged does it spread does it become a thing that people of that age actually do mm. when it comes to something to do with education. Yeah. I, I, I would guess it's probably a lot more to do with an adult telling them what, yes. you know, in the same <laughs> way that my son just doesn't appreciate my music tastes, right? <laughs> Even though they clearly are very high quality. Yeah. Anything you say, it's like, yeah. They'll, they'll, they'll do something else, right? That's they the shouldn't. If he if he liked your music taste, then something is wrong. It's not their job <laughs> to like your music taste. No, okay? not when he's fifteen. Like no, you're you doing the exact opposite, really. Yes. And and that That's is healthy. the correct thing to do. You are being a good parent. That is absolutely <laughs> right. I just wait till he discovers my record collection when he's older. <laughs> Comes back round. You've been listening to The Age of Audio with me, Graham Brown, from the award-winning podcast agency Pickle & Co. To get access to all the audio conversations and book content for The Age of Audio, go to www.theageofaudio.com. One more time, theageofaudio.com.